You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is a special one where we've collaborated with the Repro Film Fest. The Repro Film Festival advocates for women's reproductive health care, justice, and bodily autonomy. Through film and conversation, we lift intersectional issues using the power of storytelling as a catalyst for knowledge, intention, and action. With the rising threat to women's autonomy over our own bodies, we call on our audience to lift up the voices who are advocating for women's reproductive justice. So please check out the festival at www.reprofilmfest.com. It's all virtual and you can check it out from August 9th to the 18th. This episode features the Yoni Hour Shay and I did for the Repro Film Fest, where we talked about our own reproductive health and fertility journeys, along with discussing the history of birth control and the history of abortion. The episode also includes an interview with filmmaker Susan O'Brien, whose film Resist, the Resistance Revival Chorus, is featured at the festival. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Repro Film Fest Yoni Hour. I'm Laura Valbundy, and I'm joined by my Women of Tomorrow album co-writer and podcast co-host, Shay Carter. Hi, I'm Shay Carter. I'm so happy to be here. And for those unfamiliar with the term Yoni, it's a Sanskrit word that translates to the female organs of generation, and it's a symbol of our divine procreative energy. So look for more Yoni hours during the upcoming Repro Film Fest, August 9th to 18th, 2021. Before we get started, it is worth noting that while we will be covering serious topics during this conversation, we want to celebrate the fact that we have a space to talk about these issues. So if you don't have one already, grab your favorite happy hour beverage and, you know, your yoni egg if you want and (laughs) meet us back here. And as many of you know, Repro Film Fest is the only festival in the world dedicated to reproductive justice and advocating for women's reproductive health care and bodily autonomy. So we'd like to thank the Repro team for creating this space where we can have these discussions in a productive and safe environment. So this conversation today, we are going to be talking about our reproductive health and our reproductive history and do so in a personal way where we're talking about our personal experiences with our uh, reproductive organs and sort of the some of the stigma that has come with uh, the female reproductive system 
um, over time and generations throughout history and how that, it, how that actually affects us th today and some of the issues that we're currently dealing with when it comes to laws being made about our bodies. And because we are a product of <laughs> women's fertility and women having reproductive rights, thank God my mother had this, I, I feel like we should start by like letting people know our own journeys. And I know, Laura, you've had a really interesting journey with fertility. You did IVF. Um, and for those of you who don't know, it's in vitro fertilization. And I was wondering, when did you first realize that you were having issues with fertility? So it's interesting. Um, the reproductive organs are the center of health for women. And when we have something that isn't normal, that's an indication that something is off internally in our bodies. And I never had regular periods my entire life until I got into my 30s. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with my diet what I was eating, um, my stress levels, the high level of exercising that I was doing in terms of doing Broadway shows, uh, you know, a number, a number of those issues, but it began to regulate a little bit uh, as I got older. But that should have been an indication that something was going on hormonally with me. When I was in my mid to late 30s, it was time for me to have a child. And of course, I think a lot of women go through this experience right now. I know you have too, where we are career women who have a list of things that we'd like to accomplish before we have children. And our sense of autonomy and independence and financial independence is so important to us prior to having a child. And this idea of like, yes, we can go out and we can do it all. Is that real? Is that an illusion? And I believe that freezing our eggs allows us to maybe keep that dream alive. Um, yeah, and, preach on, preach on. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was in this position where I was, you know, I, I had finally accomplished these things. It felt that the timing was right to begin to try to have a child. And then it wasn't working. I didn't, my, I did not have a normal 28 day cycle. I had more of like a 32 to 35 day cycle. I didn't have 12 periods a year. I had 11 and so to try to figure out like when I was ovulating and try to have a child yeah. and it was not working. So I tried for a year and then eventually began to seek help. Now, something and that- did this come as such a shock to you? Because I think for so long, I know when I was young, I was like, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm so afraid of getting pregnant. I'm sure I can get pregnant at any minute. So then to know that you were having an issue with getting pregnant, were you like surprised by that? Being so getting, young and healthy. Getting pregnant is so polarizing. It's like the worst thing that can happen to you at one point, And then it's the best thing that can happen to you. And there's not a lot of people that experience the in-between that are like, eh, all right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, this miraculous thing on one end, or it's this horrifying thing on another, depending on what your age is and where you are in your, in your situation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I should have known that there was something going on because I, I had gone to, um, I had felt pain. These moments, I would feel this weird pain, um, especially during sex and, um, and during, you know, certain moments that in, in my reproductive area, and I didn't know what that was. Your whole life? No, in my uh, late 20s and early 30s, I started to feel this oh, thing sorry. that would come up. It, it was like a debilitating pain. It wasn't necessarily cramps during my period, which by the way, like a lot of pain during cramping is not normal 
you need to investigate that as well and make sure that everything is cool. So I had endometriosis, but it was not officially diagnosed until I was going through IVF. And here's the thing that is so crazy. And we've talked about this before on the podcast in regards to fertility. We have a podcast called Women of Tomorrow. And that's the <laughs> podcast you can check out and, and hear this other episode. But continue, We're Laura. putting this entire thing on the podcast in case you want to check it. Um, so, you know, what's interesting and is what we, we talked with Calais Stewart on, on the podcast about a number of episodes ago was what, what's crazy is that we shouldn't be finding out these things going on in our bodies when we realize that getting pregnant isn't working right? We should know earlier and be able to solve them. They should be an indication of our health overall. So I had endometriosis and wasn't diagnosed until the fertility doctor was like, oh, you have endometriosis. Learned that in the first five seconds of being an ultrasound with a fertility doctor. And I was like, that would make sense. But I've never had a gynecology appointment where they did an ultrasound. You come in and you get the pap smear and it's like, they charge your insurance and, you know, it's like, get that money, honey, moving on. Right. And some of those things we're not talking about unless you really have like this holistic approach to the female body and the health and, and all of that. So, um, you know, at the time, you know, here I was very eager to have a child and I'm like, all right, so what are my options? And my husband and I just decided to go ahead with the IVF because we wanted to have more than one child and we didn't want to have them right in a row. And so being able to have embryos that we could use several years later, uh, that idea appealed to us and appealed to me. And, and so I, I went ahead with the IVF process and I had a, a very successful uh, journey there. Um, guided and helped by an acupuncturist uh, who is, you know, my person and eating a diet that was low in sugar and no gluten and dairy. And I think that I handled some of the hormonal treatments better because of the clean diet. And I have a beautiful two-year-old little boy, but you know, these are the, these are the things that, that we go through. And then I still have endometriosis if I want another child. And it's funny because my husband and I lately Literally for the last year, we've been having unprotected sex and I have not gotten pregnant. So, oh, oh something else I wanted to mention is <clears throat> when I went through the IVF process, we're going to put the embryo in, but we have to do this test first to make sure that the cervix is clear and, you know, the fallopian tubes and everything looks clear. And when they went up for that test with me, they found a polyp, which is what you know, my, my friend Hutchie joked was nature's IUD the whole time. That wasn't the first thing they tested, right? Shouldn't that have been in the beginning of the process before even freezing my eggs? Like, oh, if we remove this polyp, you might be able to get pregnant. So I, I wasn't, I still don't know, you know, how that affected. But again, we don't check these things. We're not checking these things on a regular basis. Yeah, we're not um, really proactive about our health. And then so women are forced into this position where they don't know until they're failing at it. And then the shame in fertility and in infertility um, is just also that adds to your stress level, which is going to make you more infertile. It's sort of this vicious cycle. I'm curious. So after they do the insemination, how long did it take you to find out you were pregnant? So it's about... I want to say 10 days, 10 days. And it took the first time, right? It did. I was very fortunate. Very fortunate. Okay. So sorry. It took about 10 days. Uh 
It took out 10 days uh, to two weeks. They don't want you to take a pregnancy test. So you come in the office and find out that I did anyway. <laughs> I think a lot of women do. We're like, how could you not? That's yeah, that amount of self-control. That's I would know by the 10th day. I'm going to check it out. I did. And I remember being, it was the day after my friend Tracy J's wedding. And we were staying at a hotel. And, you know, I peed on my APT and was like, oh, my God. Ah! You know? Uh, running around, screaming, and being worried the baby was going to drop out if I <laughs> ran around too much. You know, lay down, put your feet up, hold it in, squeeze the yoni egg. Uh, <laughs> so, what's uh, so, so that, one thing that that brings up for me? Um, you know, with women's bodily autonomy being such a point of contention uh, for years and years. And especially right now, there's these new abortion laws in Texas, which make it, I think it's like a six week abortion law. Well, six weeks of, you don't even know you're pregnant yet. It took you who's looking for it, who's waiting for it five weeks. So right. gosh, so- what an un- overwhelming ask of women to know that they're pregnant within this tiny margin or abortion is illegal, even in cases of rape and incest now in Texas, which I mean, to get really deep quick, just hearing about, you know, how long it took you waiting on pins and needles to find out because you're so excited about being pregnant that. um, So here's the thing. And just to break down that timeline and how that six weeks is a really unrealistic when it comes to knowing that you may be pregnant. They will say you're five weeks pregnant, but that five weeks is from your last period, not from the actual embryo being created within the body. So for me, I, I, when I found out I was pregnant, I was five, five and a half weeks. But that was because my ovulation took place 18 to 20 days into my cycle. I was inseminated, had to wait 10 to 12 days, then took the test. So the the thing is, it's about the hormone that the pregnancy test is picking up on a hormone we have in our bodies when we are pregnant, HCG. And sometimes it's not detected in an early pregnancy test. I I have a lot of friends who took pregnancy tests, were pregnant, but they got a negative because there wasn't a lot of HCG HCG. (laughs) picked up on the the test because some of it is like they didn't take it in the morning. They took it in the afternoon after a lot of water. Like, and the thing is the more that hormone that comes in to the body, that's when we start to experience the morning sickness, which by the way, is not in the morning. It's all day long. I don't know why that's called that. <laughs> How that rumor got started. All day, all day long. And that for me, that didn't happen until I was around eight to 10 weeks pregnant. So if you are not aware, you're, if your cycle is irregular, if you don't have periods every month, if you ovulate uh, in a in a time that is unpredictable, uh, like I did, and my cycle wasn't a normal twenty eight day cycle. From the beginning of my period to the next period was almost six weeks. Mm-hmm. So I, someone like me, wouldn't wouldn't even know have six weeks to know. You know, unless I had been, I knew I had done IVF, and so I was checking. Yeah, right. But, but this is so complicated and complex, and changing from person to person and the variants are so massive that to expect 
people to A, understand their own body, much less someone else's body, enough to go into a polling place and decide that they should be able to regulate somebody else's experience when the information is vast and we don't have access to it. I'm a woman and I hardly understand what's happening in with my reproductive system. I, I just found out the other day, I tried to make a gynecology appointment for a pap smear. And because I had one last year, my insurance won't cover it. They're only covering pap smears every three years. Even though we have HPV running rampant, which leads to cervical cancer. I unfortunately had a girlfriend pass away at 27 from cervical cancer. And it's like, you know, the, the access to information then makes us really ignorant in terms of being able to make you know, vote in the, in the proper ways, make these decisions. And so I think right now I want us to take, do a little history lesson because I feel like we don't know where we are going until we know where we've been and we see the warning signs. So I know you are a huge history buff and I don't want to butcher <laughs> this history on the Comstock laws that you have so down. So please enlighten us. Well, here's the thing that's so interesting about this is I'm telling you now in this modern age, the things I didn't know about my body and you are telling me the same and our lack of education around the female reproductive system is staggering. And some of that is because the female reproductive system was considered obscene to say the word vagina was like, it's a technical term, guys. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like heart or liver, vagina, you know, and it's yet, oh, we got to say, oh, you know, or, or something like, you know, that our mom, yeah, you know, it's that, shameful, lady parts, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so this, this sort of stigma around uh, this being like bad or negative sort of is, is to blame really for us having this lack of information about our beautiful bodies that birth the human race. I mean, this is the most sacred and uh, beautiful thing that happens and we get to do that. And yet we have, we have very limited information about it unless we go search, search for it. Um, and, and so our education about women's bodies really needs to happen. I feel like it should happen in the educational system. I feel like mothers and daughters, they do their best to talk about it, but there's some people that don't have, you know, moms to talk about it with. And so we need to be better at getting this information out to all women and to men, especially if decisions being made about women's bodies are happening by men. Okay. So I'm going to go back and talk about the Comstock laws. So back in, I want to say it was 1873, the Comstock laws uh, took place, which is that talking birth control was illegal. Talking about birth control was illegal. The reproductive system, talking about any of that in a printed material sent in the mail was considered illegal. And uh, Margaret Sanger, who is a uh, controversial figure, but is also the founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights, which eventually became Planned Parenthood. 
Um, she, in the early 1900s, created a pamphlet on the women's bodies for women to understand how their reproductive system worked and how to prevent pregnancy and how to enjoy sex and explained what everything was. You know, your vulva is different from your vagina is different from your clitoris, which is different from your cervix and here's your ovaries and here's your uterus. And this is how it all works. And she printed these pamphlets and she would talk about, you know, you're ovulating at this time of month and this, and here are the things that you can do and this. And she was arrested and she was charged with, I think, over 20 years mm -hmm. um, for this because it was considered profanity. And really, you know, she was actually, she was talking about it on the town hall stage in New York City. And she was arrested from the stage, taken through the town hall, and the women were singing We Shall Overcome as she was walking down. And what's interesting is, is that our album that we made it, to me became inspired by the event that I did at the town hall to raise money for women's rights and health uh, back in 2017. And in that exact same place, um, one, it was almost 100 years to the day of that event. Oh. So, and she would have gotten 20 years in jail had she not fled, yeah, to, she Europe. fled to Europe. Like she would be in jail for 20 <laughs> years for just teaching women about their reproductive yes. system. And when she was there, she studied with, with, um, you know, different sex psychologists and things to understand more because for her, you know, there were, there were two sects of thinking at that time that a woman's right to vote, um, was going to give women the most power. And she believed that a woman's understanding of their body and the ability to plan a family was going to give her the most freedom and the most power. And I believe that you see, you know, when you look back at um, our history as women and our uh, modernization as women and our independence and our financial independence, this big sea change for us happened in the 70s and that is when we when birth control became illegal sorry when birth became control illegal. became illegal mm -hmm. for single women in uh want to say it was 1973 and that's when you saw this sort of huge surge of women going to university um then you see in the 80s this big surge of women that are getting out of that universities going into the workplace and then we sort of have this natural evolution of where we are today as a result of birth control, mm -hmm. of the understanding of how our bodies work and the ability to plan a family and to have autonomy about our bodies. And you also know, not as a not only as a result of birth control, I also mean the a Roe v. Wade decision was made during that time mm -hmm. as well. Um, so this sort of sense of reproductive freedom um, and our autonomy over our body has created independence and freedom and financial wealth for us. Well, it has also saved a ton of lives. Like before Roe v. Wade, I think we were losing 5,000 women a year that we knew about every year that was dying from abortions. And then that effectively ended when Roe v. Wade happened and we made them legal. When you make abortions illegal, there's approximately like 68,000 women each year that die from unsafe abortions. Women are never going to stop having abortions. They're just going to stop having safe ones. That is true. I had Which an is. interview with Barbara Boxer and she said that uh, there, we're not going to stop women from having abortions. We're just going to not be able to 
save their lives, you know? And so that's, that's what's really difficult about it. And so I want to talk about something else when it comes to the history of abortion and contraception. Abortion was considered legal in the beginning of our country's foundings when the Puritans came over. And it was, it wasn't just legal. It was safe. It was condoned and it was a practice procedure by the Puritans. The Puritans decided this is right. We're going to keep this going. And so, but the difference is, so it wasn't a six week deadline for them. It was, it could happen before the quickening. And the quickening is when uh, the, like from 14 to 26 weeks where you can feel a kick, you know, and how these uh, abortions were done was not a surgical procedure. It was through midwifery and holistic uh, medicine, mostly women who had this knowledge passed down years and years and years, ancient medicine of um, herbs and tinctures that would eliminate a pregnancy. And so this was always safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, we're going to take this little tincture and these things. And, you know, it was probably very private as well. And um, an, an important thing to see in all of this is Always ask, what is the reason people want control over women? What is the reason why people are caring if that woman has an abortion because she was raped? What is the reason? So it's like when you when you really are looking at this history, instead of just assuming it's this morality clause, ask the questions because a lot of things were changing at this same time in modern medicine, where medicine was really kind of, you know, women's intuitive medicine. We were holistic. They were, we were using the use of herbs and you look at all of these ancient traditions and then you see the male white Western doctors that are now creating a business in medicine that Mm -hmm. is going to undercut all of this. So there's so many different levels, varying levels of why having control over women's bodies, having control over women's lives, keeping an American woman's job as wife and mother being the predominant predominant role for all women in America because that is that leaves more room for men. Well, well I think we need to talk about the specifics in this. Well, yeah, so, Sarah that- Grosvenor, is that the girl who was like, I think this is in 18th century America. Um, a young woman died from a late term surgical abortion in Connecticut. It was in 1742 and surgical mm-hmm. abortions were rare and dangerous back then. And most abortions in this period, you know, were the herbal things that we were just talking about. But mm-hmm. in Sarah's case, there's this whole legal record and the doctor got acu- accused of murdering the young woman and the unborn child. And so this started kind of bringing up uh, more sensitivity and, and like more, this seemed more extreme. And Mm -hmm. so this is, that's, I think one of the biggest shifts in changing how we started to see abortions that even though it was like very normalized before. And also want to really point out some, give you some, from the beginning of the founding of our country, Puritans coming over through the declaration of independence, abortion was not, there were no laws and laws against it until the 1860s and they weren't everywhere and they had to do with at four between 14 and 23 weeks the quickening it was a misdemeanor 
to have an abortion. Now that was after that was because of surgical procedures and there was, and not because of the herbs in the midwifery, but I want to talk about the invention of science and scientific procedures in medicine that had to do with surgical procedures and that these were male dominated fields and midwifery and holistic medicine were female dominated fields. And so there was this, um, campaign mm-hmm. to criminalize abortion because of this growing, uh, the American physicians, male physicians, uh, they began to battle these irregular doctors, like, you know, to find their way and to make their way into medicine. And because these irregular doctors like midwives and homeopaths, um, would give herbal remedies for abortion, they began to villainize the this. Yeah. And villainize is the exact word. You have to create a villain and capitalism always needs a villain. (laughs) So together, a coalition of male doctors backed by the American Medical Association and the Catholic Church and a sensationalist newspaper began to campaign for the criminalization of abortion. You guys, that's how it happened. That's how it (laughs) happened. Article that it's called it's from AmericanProgress.org. Um, it is called Scarlet Letters: Getting the History of Abortion and Contraception Right. And I highly recommend that you take a look at and read the, the entire thing. So much uh, wonderful it's really, information. Really, it's really fascinating about sort of the the way that we had healthcare prior, that sea change of Western medicine, and um, and how women's bodies were all sort of wrapped up into that. And one interesting fact that I wanted to bring up uh, that I forgot about was because birth control, any form was considered illegal. It wasn't just a birth control pill until 1965 uh, for married women in 1973 for single women. It was any form of birth control being talked about. These were the Comstock laws were not made, made illegal until this time. So there was like these undercover words being used like feminine hygiene product in in the early 1900s that would mean birth control like every woman knew that the feminine hygiene product was going to prevent pregnancy so products like Lysol were advertised as feminine hygiene products and the number one form of birth control used during the great depression was Lysol which is insane. <laughs> I hurt thinking about it. Okay. Woo! Think about how many women like became infertile from putting Lysol. All the medical implications. And we don't give birth control to men. Right. I'd like to and- see a man put Lysol. <laughs> Shoot yeah. it up there. Uh, yeah. So, you know, these, these were the measures and this was this lack of information and but to know where we were coming from and then to see this big turn that we just took in Texas mm-hmm. and to realize that there are things we can do. We do want to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. That's a mm-hmm. huge way for us to start to be able to fight these kind of insane new, like this legislation that's occurring in different states. Um, and the what's happening with the ERA right now, If for those of you who don't know, the Equal Rights Amendment is the shortest amendment that would ever be amended into the Constitution. And it states that you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. And that's it. That's the whole amendment that you cannot discriminate on the basis of of sex. sex. It's good for everyone. And so we now have ratified 
the Equal Rights Amendment, but we need to remove the deadline. We removed the deadline, I think, on March 17th of this year. I think it was the 17th. It's a big day for us. I should know it. I should get it tattooed on my forehead. Um, and it passed in, in the House to remove the deadline, but it needs to pass in the Senate. And there are ways that we can help. You can go to the ERA Coalition website and you can. They, give, they make it so easy to write to your senators. They make it so easy to donate. They make it so easy to find grassroots action, um, sign petitions. So it's nice to know that there's something out there that you can do from your living room. And you can and help women advocate for each other and for yourself. And if you're a man and you're listening to this, we need you. We need you to call on behalf of us, on behalf of your mother, your sister, your love, your friend. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That, that's so important. Because one of the scary things about this new bill in Texas is it's also allowing people to sue each other. So you can sue somebody that aids in helping somebody get a, an, a, an abortion. You can sue the person that administers the abortion. You can sue the person that is going to have the abortion. And you do not to be need to be related in any way to the person that is having the abortion in order to do these things. And so now we're creating an even more isolating experience than it already is and a more painful experience than it already is. And we are make, almost guaranteeing that this will be done in a dangerous way. Yeah. And, and that's so upsetting and that should not happen to women or to anyone. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess we'll wrap it up here. <laughs> and on that cheery, cheery note, but there are things that we can do and there, there are ways that we can help each other. And I think um, even in this beautiful film festival here, being able to bring awareness to women and and find unity is so important and for our survival and for and the what's health. Great, what's great about the Repro Film Festival is here's a place for you to get information. Yes. But you're getting information through art, so it's entertaining. Uh, and and it's so important that we do have a place where we can discuss these issues and we can talk about them and we can personalize them because they are personal. When we talk about them on a political level, sometimes we can disengage because it's like not me personally, but we do deal with this. You know, over 50% of the population is women and we deal with this every day. And um, so now we have a place where we can voice and we can express ourselves through art and we can watch other people's art and we can learn things. It's great. So we want to thank all of you guys for joining us and for getting involved in the movement and reproductive rights and reproductive justice for all. And please make plans to support the Repro Film Festival by purchasing film tickets or an all access pass, which is what I will be doing. Uh, so they can convert that money to donations to support the missions of this year's beneficiary organizations, which are... Black Women's Health Imperative, The Lilith Fund, and No More Secrets. All 15 films included in the festival are directed by filmmakers who use she, her pronouns. And you can get full festival information at reprofilmfest.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you for Shay Carter for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing in this amazing conversation and I hope we spread empathy and compassion and acceptance. Bye guys. Using her freedom, using her voice. When God says free will, she means
man's choice Baby, how you feeling? Breaking that glass ceiling when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, welcome to Women of Tomorrow. I'm Laura Bundy. And I'm Shay Carter. And, and we, we are, are partners, partners in feminist, feminist crime. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to say that together while we're on a Zoom. So as many of you know who listen to this podcast, our mission is to do activism through art. Our album addresses the different issues that women are facing today in each and every song we have on the album, be it from equal pay to over-apologizing, unattainable beauty standards, uh, autonomy over our bodies, you name it, we discuss it, and we sing about it. Because it's easier to hear difficult messages inside of a beautiful melody. And there is an access and a connection that music makes to the soul that just speaking out doesn't necessarily do on the same level vibrationally, which is why this film that we're talking about uh, from the Repro Festival uh, has such synergy and we felt so connected to it because uh, this amazing group is doing exactly what we're doing, but in a different way. So uh, in the midst of a country divided, a diverse group of women and non-binary individuals unite through the historic power of music to create a movement ignited by song. Resist, the resistance revival chorus captures the efforts of a diverse group of women and non-binary individuals mission to confront fear, oppression and prejudice with the bonding call of poet Toy Derricott's words, joy is an act of resistance. Singing inspirational protest anthems written throughout the history of America, the chorus takes their music to New York City streets and provides fellow resistors a collective soundtrack to motivate activism. With the rise of such civil rights and civic movements like Black Lives Matter, Close the Camps, Me Too, Stop the Bands, and the Global Climate Strike, the chorus finds that their fervent efforts begin to influence local and national change, igniting a larger movement. In Atlanta, San Diego, Riverside, California, and other towns and cities across the country, new chapters rise with the same fueled passion to support justice and equal rights for all people. Together with the harmony of their voices uplifted in song, a universal language of justice and joy engages the world. <laughs> well, that makes me emotional <laughs> already. So I would love to introduce the filmmaker of this amazing film, uh, 
Susan O'Brien, thank you for being here with us. And we, we are so excited to have a conversation with you on what inspired you to do this film and the process that you had. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you both. I was so moved by the film. I found myself crying in so many different moments um, and feeling so, I had such a desire to be a part of this chorus. And I was wondering, how did you first become aware of the Resistance Revival Chorus? Yeah, it was about three years ago that I saw the chorus perform for the first time. It was at a Bust Magazine, their 25th anniversary. And they had this big party and all of these amazing performers performing on stage. And the Resistance Revival Chorus was one of the acts that they had. And the minute that the chorus went on the stage the energy in the room just completely changed. You could feel just the pulsating uh, spirit of their song, just invigorating you and your fellow audience members. And I didn't know who they were, but I knew how they made me feel and how they made the other people in the room feel. And I turned to one of my friends and I said them, I don't know who they are, but I want to be a part of them. Um, so same thing. I was like, I, I need to be a part of their mission. I need to, I also sang so selfishly. I was like, I want to be a part of this group. But um, I also, I just wanted to understand this community that was so clearly portrayed on the stage of all of these women and non-binary individuals from different walks of life, ethnicities, genders, uh, ages, all coming together to really unite um, and bring the power of song to the masses. So that was the beginning. And I reached out to one of the founders and I said, hi, you don't know me, but I want to stalk you <laughs> for a bit. And, <laughs> and she said, okay. <laughs> and, and two and a half years later, now we have resist. So we've seen kind of the development of the chorus as well for the past couple of years. And you've got to sing in the chorus. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> It hasn't happened yet, but I, I want to. They don't know that this is actually a secret desire of mine. So surprise, I want to sing with you. The listeners out there, the the film captures what it is that that the chorus does. And it, it's a community of people in different towns who've come together and they are raising their voices in unison during protests. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's so amazing. And then using these sort of historical spirituals and protest songs and, and reimagining them for now. And it's yes. just so, it's so beautiful. I think what's interesting and striking about it is if you've been to a march or a protest, there is like, I've gone alone, right? Or with one other person. And then you're sort of gravitating towards these different groups. And there they are as one massive group. And they're raising, they're saying the same thing and in a vibrational way that you have to stop everything you're doing to turn around to listen. 
right? You don't have to necessarily do that when someone is like, you know, <laughs> just like chanting, like, yeah, it's not, it's not the same thing as when you just hear this beautiful music and you're like, oh, you stop in your tracks, you turn around and you listen. And then inside of that incredible sound is an important message we need to hear. Absolutely. And one of the groups that we cover in the documentary, they actually live in a more conservative um, town. And that's in Riverside, California. Mm -hmm. They talk in the film about this moment that they had at one of their protests where they were singing and across the street were people with opposing ideologies. And all of a sudden through their song, the people stopped and they listened to them. And that's the power of music is that you are meeting injustice with a melody and hatred with a hum mm -hmm. that you, it's a meditative also experience. I think that it ignites people in ways that are beyond the human language um, because music is the universal language. So I thought that was really powerful when they talked about living in a conservative community, which was also very important for us to discuss in the film that not every city that has a resistance revival chorus chapter is like New York city where, right. you know, it's a melting pot Um that there are towns where they have resistance revival choruses and they are met with people. True resistance. Are, yeah, with true resistance. And, and yet they are able to continue to unite and actually start a conversation. So. Oh, I was also really moved. I think it was a San Diego chapter where they were like also singing in Spanish and recognizing that like, we're going to be one voice and we're going to be in that language. And there is something so meditative. It's why it's how tribes, it's why how all of our ancient ancestors, there's singing. And because to have everyone sing as one voice, that's unifying, um, is, is very powerful and to unify in another language and to show that kind of empathy and compassion be like, we are one, we may be separated by language, but we are still one. I felt like that was such an amazing moment in the film. I have a question for you. One of the things that I learned watching the film was some of the history behind some of these songs that I thought I, I understood, like Wade in the Water. I always thought that song was about baptism and to learn that it was actually like instructions on how to tell people to free themselves. Was there any, was there, what was like the most interesting thing you learned and didn't know? While doing yeah, yeah, I follow the drinking gourd as well is a classic that was also instructional. I think originally my plans for this film were just to make it a five minute piece. And, and so I think throughout this whole process of two and a half years working on this project, I have learned beyond anything that I thought uh, protest music was. I've read up on so many different books about music and activism. Um, so definitely, yeah, the instructions of the black spirituals and, and how we don't realize where they actually come from and songs that even today, it's like you, 
look at Beyonce and what she's singing and it's protest music. If you look back at these other songs throughout history with the, the civil rights movement and the lyrics and the intention behind it, it's the same thing as what our queen Beyonce is doing. <laughs> and some of these amazing you know, women and also men, uh, Kendrick Lamar is somebody that also is an activist in his music. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just the, it was the same thing as you learning the history of these songs and where they come from, which also is just a universal um, thing that all of the chorus members seem to have enjoyed coming into this chorus of knowing these songs and having sung them in church for years and years and years, but not actually understanding the true meaning behind them and who were the people that sang these songs before them, which is important to acknowledge. Definitely. Uh, Shay and I were talking about Martha and the Vandellas uh, dancing in the street. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like calling out around the world. It sounds like you remember and you're like dancing in the streets. feels like this fun, but it's really about protesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, that's, there were, especially during the civil rights movement in Motown, so many songs, Love Child uh, with Diana Ross. This was about women's rights and, uh, and, and poverty. And, and, you know, I mean, a lot of, I think that's, that really is, a, we don't really notice, but most music is about a shared experience, about shared pain. Artistry is, uh, is inspired from a, a pain we feel that we need to express and heal through the art. Um, and what I love about the, the message of this film, which seems to be that uh, art and music is at the helm of revolution uh, and unites us. And, allow, and in a way, revolution is not going to be uh, accomplished without understanding, right? Mm -hmm. We don't get where we want to go until people from the other side understand and enough people understand where the change is made. And there's so much about a message inside of music that like can touch us and reach us on a soul level where we do actually begin to process and understand because it it's, feels human and personal to us. Right. That's incredible. Can I include that quote in the film? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a recut. <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think that that's, that's in a way what this is doing. There's this quote that like struck me from the film. And I don't know uh, the woman who said it, but I do know she was from the Riverside Chorus. Mm -hmm. And it was this sort of commentary on being gentle, like being a gentle person. I'm not an angry person, but she said, I'm a gentle person. But if you get me angry, I will sing about it and I will sing for my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a quote from, or a lyric, I should say, from a Holly Near song. And it goes, yeah, we are a gentle, angry people, but we are singing for our lives. And it's so true. And, and it goes back to how do you confront all of this injustice in the world. You can raise your fists in the air 
Um, you can, you know, the stereotype, I think, always of protests is this vision of holding these picket signs in the air and yelling and uh, being angry. Um, and it doesn't have to be angry. It can be conversational. It can be joyful, um, as the chorus loves to quote uh, the poet Toy Derricott's words of joy is an act of resistance. And also there's rest in resistance because when you are putting yourself and your body and your heart on the line, you need to also feed your soul at the same mm -hmm. time. Because that's how you're going to empower yourself and you're going to get through to other people as well. So equally as important as pounding pavement, marching down the street, being a presence, letting your voice be heard is the power of joy and is the power of supporting your community and being a part of that community um, and encouraging one another and, and celebrating with one another and also resting and giving yourself the opportunity to do your own sense of healing. Oh, and I think that's such an important piece that we don't talk about. Sort of that whole old adage of it's easier to catch a bee with honey than with vinegar. You know, it's like mm -hmm. when you can at least get a pleasant melody in somebody's head before they're ready for the words, when you can create an environment that feels welcoming to have a conversation, you just heard this beautiful choir saying, maybe you're more likely to talk to them if you have an opposing view because you don't feel like you're going to be yelled at. You know, so sometimes we have these, even if they're for the greater good, you have this idea that you want to press your opinion on, on somebody, but it's all in the way that you give somebody access to that information. You could say the truth, but, but say it in a hateful way and have everyone turn from you. So I love that we're talking about being able to be activists within joy and peacefulness and rest and kind of creating um, a safe ground for people to come and to learn and to expand. And, and the great thing also about protest music, just to go off of that, is many times it is a call and response. Mm -hmm. so it is actually singing something and then in return you are getting the community to sing back to you. So I keep on bringing up the word conversational, but it really is music and in particular protest music is so conversational in the way that it even is formed. Um, just in itself, it is meant to bring other people in where I'm saying something to you. What do you think back? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also easy to remember. Mm -hmm. Like when you, I used to in school make up songs for things I needed to learn because I would remember the melody and the words and the rhyme and, and these messages inside melody with rhyme make it easier, easier for us to remember and take with us as we go. Uh, which is what the beauty of what songwriting is and of singing is and the impact um, is that somehow it stays with us and maybe we don't understand it now, mm -hmm. but, but we think about it and, we're, and we sing it to ourselves and we're like, Oh, 
that's what that means. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I did that, like songs I heard as a kid and I know all the lines, the lyrics for, and then I start thinking about it as an adult and it, it's like, oh, it has meaning. You yeah, know? you now have ears to hear it. Because sometimes yeah. you hear something, but you just don't have ears to hear it yet. But when you right. remember it for all those years, it's a song, you like give yourself some time to marinate. Yeah. Right. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I feel like a classic song uh, that the chorus uses that we all know we shall overcome that it's so repetitive too. It gets stuck in your head. Everybody knows we shall overcome, but it's repetitiveness and reinstating over and over and over again, we shall overcome. If you're singing it enough times, you have to believe it. Mm-hmm. So so that's also the power behind those songs that get stuck in your head that are just kind of part of your DNA at this point. I think a lot of us also just have like gum songs and uh, the local tire place, their jingles stuck in our head. <laughs> but, but so it's these songs that kind of stick with you that are just a part of you without even thinking about it. But when it comes to a song like we shall overcome, you say it enough times and you have to, you have to believe it. And it's, there's so much power in those words um, to kind of circle back to a podcast that Laura and I did before there, we brought up a story about this this woman during the civil rights movement who had there was men with guns and they were in I think a cafeteria space at the time and she got up and she started singing We Shall Overcome and the man with a gun begged her to stop and she realized the power of music. Mm-hmm. Here's somebody armed and she's a young girl with nothing and she's singing these words because they're so powerful mm-hmm. and like her voice and her stance in that was so powerful and I think that we we forget the power of voice and truth and, and how that is stronger than guns and violence. And we just need to be amplified. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. So it's the literal raising of voices, right? When you're mm-hmm. singing, it's the raising of voices. When I did the town hall event, which I just talked about, our slogan for the event was we can march, but you ain't heard nothing until you hear us sing. And, um, and it is, it's just a different thing because it's a, you know, we were talking, Shay and I were talking about the vibration mm-hmm. of singing. Your body is vibrating. Mm-hmm. And this, then you, when you have groups of women together that are vibrating together, they're taking the vibrational energy up. Mm-hmm. And then they're like healing each other while they're singing. What I felt really when I watched this film was what was happening within these groups of these smaller communities, which is women who were feeling um, <clears throat> sort of personally overwhelmed by what was going on in the country, having a place where they could go and have community but have healing through song, Mm -hmm. like being able to raise your voice together and raise that vibrational level. There's like an, there's like an outpouring that happens, like an emotional outpouring that happens when you sing Mm -hmm. um, that I, I feel very strongly as a singer. Like if I, if I'm singing about something I care about when I'm singing about it, I cry, but when I talk about it, I might not. And the bonding hormone between people of singing together. Like the oxytocin you talk about in the exact yeah, yeah. One of the um 
the non-binary singers that we interview in the group, they are actually a music therapist. And so they talk about uh, the science behind exactly what you're saying, those vibrations. And it is scientifically proven that it's so impactful for the body and you do connect and you start literally vibrating in the same frequency, um, which is just incredible. It's, I think, to go back to your question earlier, Shay, about some of the things that I learned from doing this documentary, that was one of them too, just learning the science. And um, a few of the chorus members are actually music therapists and hearing their perspective on the healing power of music and how it's not just something that can be spiritual. It is something physical, um, that happens within us. So, and that you can measure science is getting really incredible about starting to understand consciousness and realizing that there are vibrational points in our body that we can actually measure to know when we're in stress, to know when we're calm. And it's going to be really fun. I think in the future to be able to like almost see a physical interpretation of the energy that's shared between us when we're doing things like this, when we're singing, even when we're just connecting over, um, shared activism and compassion and empathy and like what that vibrates at and what that looks like. And, uh, I just think that creating, finding this chorus and then creating your documentary writing and bringing awareness is so impactful. It made me really want to start a revival chorus in Nashville. I can't believe there isn't one here. Everyone sings here. Right. How, do, you, how do they do that? Is there information? How like, do you start one? How do you start Whatever. one? Okay. So what you can do is you can go on our website. You can go to theresistfilm.com and we have a tab that says create your own chapter. And that was created by the original New York City Resistance Revival Chorus. And so they created this toolkit that does a breakdown of how to create your own chapter. And that's exactly what the Atlanta um, chorus did and San Diego and Riverside, which we feature in the film. But what's also incredible is that there are so many other chapters of this chorus that are popping up. So it is really becoming a global movement, I should say, because it is now in Canada and Australia. Um, and in the States, there are new ones that are in Portland, in Ohio, in Vermont, um, in other parts of New York, other than New York City. So it is coming to a town near you. I love <laughs> Whether you this. <laughs> But if you think you don't like it, show up. I guarantee you're going to like it. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't, the big thing too, is you don't have to have any experience in singing. Just show up with an open heart and an open mind and they will be accepting of you. And together you will create beautiful music no matter what. So you can have zero experience. You can be tone deaf if you choose, but if you come in and you have the right intention and energy and are just happy to be there and be celebrating and joyful, then this is the chorus for you. I love it. Mm -hmm. uh, I have lots of plans in my head for, for the chorus. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love those. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
<laughs> Jay, you and you were talking to uh, about something with me, which I think is a really interesting question for Susan about support and the oh, mother relationship. Yeah. The, the mother daughter relationship in the film really touched me because I'm so lucky to have a mother that is so supportive and really advocates for me, and it's incredible. Unfortunately, in doing this album I did with Laura, I had a lot of female family members, both sets of grandmothers and aunts and stuff that really um, felt very differently than the art that I was creating. And so it put such a riff um, and, and a, an uncomfortability. And I was wondering, do you have any advice for women that wish they could be more a part of the feminist movement, but are afraid mm -hmm. of the reaction from their like friends and family that may have opposing views? Mm, that's it's kind of heavy. It's kind of a loaded one, but I'm curious. Oh, no. I mean, that's I, that's a question that I think I've definitely had many conversations with my friends about, um, especially I went to school in the South. Um, and so a lot of my friends there, they, they deal with that exact question um, of living a lifestyle that is put into question. And I think with that... It's always, it's, it's hard because you want to be patient. Um, patience is, I think, the key with everything in life. And, and you want it to be conversational as much as possible. Um, but I recently had a conversation with my mom um, about some decisions that I've made just in my life. And, and we are kind of, of similar ideologies and in our views of the world. However, there are some things that I do as part of my art that I never knew if my mom approved of or not. And I think it's inherent in you as the child um, or the, the niece or whoever um, that's in your family that you want to feel accepted by them no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I, I never had that conversation with my mom about some particular things. And I asked her what she thought about it. And she actually brought up that no matter what, um, if I agree with you, if I don't agree with you, we love you. So we're always going to come from a place of love and you just have to do what you want to do and live your life the way that you want to live it. Because later on, if you don't actually embrace the parts of you that are your soul and are your spirit and are your thoughts later down the line, it, you'll, you'll regret it. So I think just in having those conversations, and there are definitely members of the chorus who have family members that don't agree with what they're doing. But if you're leading with love, and if you are approaching these conversations with family members, with friends uh, who might be thinking differently than you do and aren't approving of some of the decisions that you're making or viewpoints that you have. If you lead with love and I think if you touch on the emotions beyond what the political statement is at the end of the day, like with this chorus, as an example, it's 
a statement of joy and it's a statement of love and it's a statement of community. And if you don't agree on those things, then that's a separate conversation. But I think most people can relate to those three things. I don't know if that answers the question at all. No, it did. I think that's a beautiful way. (laughs) I think that's a beautiful, like, especially start to that and being able to reconcile some of that. I also find that, like, sometimes, you know, you have your family that you're born into and that is for a reason as well. And you learn things and you expand in ways. And then you have your family that you find and that you create and that you make with your friends and you make in a community like the resistance revival chorus. And, you know, that can be your tribe. So no, thank you so much for that. I think that that was, that was like very good advice. Susan, is there anything else you want to share with us about the film and your process? About the film and the process. Um, just, I'm excited to see where they go. It's been amazing following them so closely over the past couple of years and seeing how society and the government and all of these policies um, and different movements have arisen over the past two years. I uh, A lot of the footage, the majority of the footage of protest was just me going in the crowds with them and holding my camera up and shooting and trying to document everything. So I, I just feel incredibly lucky that they trusted me with authentically telling their story and allowing me to show up in their space and, and then equally create space for them as well. It's just, it's been an amazing journey going into all of these crowds of all different uh, streets here in New York city and Atlanta and San Diego and Riverside and following this movement rising from all of these other movements that have come about over the past few years, Black Lives Matter with its rise again, because obviously Black Lives Matter started in 2013, but this most recent rise in the movement last year, Stop Asian Hate, uh, Stop the Stop the Bands, Free the Camp. So there are all these movements that... Me as an individual, um, I was affected by and wanted to have my own voice um, in spreading the message and in defending the rights of every individual and getting to do it through this chorus and showing their perspective too just was a really beautiful and powerful experience that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Well, it's awesome. And you guys can check out the film at the Repro Film Festival. It's called Resist the Resistance Revival Chorus. And you can head to reprofilmfest.com to purchase a ticket or an all-access pass to watch on demand online between August 9th and 18th, 2021. All proceeds of this festival will be donated to three reproductive justice beneficiary organizations, Black Women's Health Imperative, Lilith Fund, and no more secrets. So you guys check it out and think about where you can start a movement through your own artistry and bring joy to the world. Got a job, a flat, join the race.
face Never tell this woman she should know her place A few years later frames another degree Filling up her seat up getting vitamin D Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.